Lebanon is marking one year since a blast that was a shock beyond anything the country had ever experienced. And though it's been the deepest crisis in Lebanon's history, in many important ways, not much has changed. It's been difficult to find adjectives for the situation we're in, because already a year ago, it felt like we were on the verge of collapse. We were talking about unprecedented crisis and economic implosion. When you've used all those words, there's sort of nothing left. What is left is to ask why so little has changed. And that starts with the fight to hold someone, anyone, accountable. Lebanon is a small country surrounded by regional powers, and its fights are often a proxy for bigger conflicts. Now, the investigation into the Beirut port blast has become a proxy battle for the future of Lebanon itself. I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. It's sort of really hard to believe that it's been a year. It feels both like it was yesterday, but it also feels like it was 10 years ago, just because of what everyone has been through in Lebanon. That's Timur Ashedi, who writes for the Thomson Reuters Foundation. I caught up with him from when we last spoke a year ago, during his time as a reporter for Al Jazeera. Let's start with a year ago. What are the memories that have stuck with you? Uh, Yeah, I mean, I remember the moment of the blast. It was really surreal. I was standing at an apartment that's 10 kilometers outside of Beirut, which had a direct line of sight to the port. It was sort of in the mountains perched above the city. And I remember getting a text from a friend saying, oh, there's this big fire at the port. And I looked out of the window. There was this big plume of smoke rising above Beirut. Um, And within 10 or 15 seconds, there was this big flash of red and then this massive tidal wave, mushroom cloud kind of explosion that just shot up into the sky. I I remember staring at that and, and not really understanding what was happening in front of me. And it took 30 seconds for the blast wave to hit. It was this double bang, you know, which I felt throughout my entire body. You know, it was absolutely surreal. It looked like an atomic blast. A massive explosion sent shockwaves tearing through the Lebanese capital. A mushroom cloud of debris and seawater blasted into the air. The detonation was heard 200 miles away in at least two other countries. The huge blast at the port sent shockwaves across the city. Hospitals across the city were quickly overwhelmed. Like many Beirutis, what Taimur remembers is the sight and sound of the thousands of glass windows shattered by the explosion. Everywhere you looked in the city, there was glass, shards of glass. It was everywhere. It was everywhere it shouldn't be. People are still finding glass to this day, including in their bodies. Taimur says today, the main residential area affected has started to recover. But a year on, with no accountability yet for the blast, there's not much trauma that's been resolved. And the fight for accountability has consumed Lebanon's politics for the last year. And it centers around immunity. So in Lebanon, there's this system where top officials, if you're a judge, if you're a security official, if you're an MP, you have special privileges. You're not like other citizens. Basically, to prosecute someone in one of those positions, you have to get government permission. 
So you have this barrier, basically, to accountability that has been abused for decades. And there's a sense among analysts that what is being done here is Lebanese officials, what they're trying to say here is there will be no accountability for this because if there is accountability for this, that opens the floodgates. You know, Lebanon is a place where there is rampant corruption. It's sort of an open secret that many elected officials are involved in corruption, but they operate with total impunity. And so there really is the sense that if in this case, those immunities are raised and we, we would actually see a minister or an official sit in front of a judge, then, hey, maybe in the future we could see them sit there for other reasons. So last year, when the judge investigating the blast started charging ministers, the prime minister, along with several others, Tamor says that didn't fly. The judge was dismissed and a new one appointed. And now he's caught in the same immunity fight. But one thing worth noting about that first judge who was taken off the case, the criticism was that he couldn't be impartial. One of the main reasons, in fact, was that he lived in an area that had been affected by the blast. I think that glass at his house had been shattered. And so that was seen as a reason to dismiss him. And, you know, the reminder here, this blast injured 6,500 people. It killed more than 200 people. And in the immediate aftermath, 300,000 people were displaced. And so the idea, many people ridiculed this idea that the judge, by virtue of living in Beirut, was biased. It's almost as if the entire Lebanese population then would be biased, because this is really something that shook the country. I mean, even if you weren't personally affected by this, everybody knows someone who was injured. Most people know someone who died. And certainly the sort of trauma of this has seeped through to every last person in the country. What has the Lebanese reaction to the lack of accountability been like? Initially, in the direct aftermath of the explosion, we had a protest four days later. And it was quite an angry protest in downtown Beirut, in, in really what looked like the carcass of a city. And Lebanese security forces, including the parliament guards, shot at protesters, basically shot at wounded people with live ammunition. The level of rage uh, that I saw, you know, I was on the ground that day, and the level of rage that I saw of, you know, people who literally had just survived one of the world's biggest non-nuclear explosions. And then the Lebanese authorities had the audacity to fire on them, live ammunition, injuring hundreds of people. It was so reprehensible that, that most people couldn't even understand it. And I think that a lot of people understood that day that it would be really difficult to get accountability in Lebanon. And so what we've seen since in, in terms of the people's reaction to the judicial process is increasing anger. Timur says that includes the families of the victims. On Monday, they issued an ultimatum calling for immunity to be lifted. And some politicians have called for that too. We're getting to a point where the families of blast victims are saying that they don't want to be civilized anymore, that they've tried being nice. Ibrahim Hatet, who is the brother of a victim, and he's in a, a spokesperson for one of these committees that uh, represent the blast victims. Here's Ibrahim speaking at a news conference on Monday. Our patience has run out. That's it. You must understand that if you really have the country's best interests at heart and want to prevent it from deteriorating. We're heading towards actions of breaking bones. We're done with routine and peaceful demonstrations. We hope you think about it very hard. He was even speaking about the one-year remembrance, um, August 4th. He was saying, like, while the families, you know, wanted to be a day of sort of reflection and contemplation, 
they will not police other people who want to go and break things and, quote, set the country on fire. I think it's important to convey what they're saying here because you really get a sense of the desperation. When you have these people who are saying, we have nothing to lose, they will literally say, you know, we are dead. On top of all of that, Lebanon's politics are back in paralysis. The country's prime minister-designate, Saad Hariri, announced just a short while ago that he's stepping down. The government fell apart last year after the blast. And since then, multiple caretaker prime ministers have deadlocked trying to form a new one. But while this political crisis is going on, it makes it nearly impossible to face the massive economic crisis. The Lebanese pound has lost more than 90% of its value and fuel and food are running out. The current economic freefall in Lebanon, with the government effectively bankrupt, is swelling the ranks of the poor here. Half the country now live below the poverty line. Lebanon is descending fast into an economic crisis that the World Bank says will likely rank among the world's worst of the last 150 years. That's pretty much when the modern capitalist system was created. And so you're really talking about a scale of crisis that is almost unprecedented in world history, in this tiny, tiny country. And it really doesn't take that much to fix it. You know, these things that need to be done are pretty clear in terms of the reforms, the corruption fighting measures. All of that is all of that is done. But what you have is you have political, basically, intransigence. And in effect, Lebanon is sort of living in a zombie phase now where It's not really alive. It's not functioning in any way that a normal state functions. So when you were last on the podcast, we talked about Lebanon's infrastructure. It started to collapse to the point where there were no traffic lights in the streets. And you were talking to us about driving through these darkened streets. This is the entrance to the Hamra Street. And as you see, there is just absolutely no light. No traffic lights uh, and and no regular street lights. That is the, the situation in Beirut today. The currency back then was worth about 7,000 Lebanese pounds to the dollar on the black market, which was already a huge slide. So what's changed in a year economically? It's now hovering around 20,000 to a dollar. I would say that I've definitely gotten used to the darkness I remember when we spoke at that time and I had written a piece about, you know, these how traffic lights had stopped working and traffic lights were a symbol of sort of a return to normalcy after the Lebanese civil war. They're pretty much all gone now. I mean, when I see a traffic light, I, I sort of do a double take. It's not something that I'm used to. And that's the least of it. We're in a situation now where most people are receiving just a few hours of electricity per day. Lebanon hasn't had functioning 24-hour electricity since before the Civil War. That's before 1975. And that's why everyone has to rely on alternative sources. When I last spoke to you, state power was as bad as it's always been. But people could afford to subscribe to private generators, which would power you through the rest of the day. Now we're in a situation where there's not even enough fuel in the country to power those generators. To get fuel in in Lebanon now, you basically need to think ahead for a few hours. You basically need to get in line and, and wait there. Often you have a whole lane of the road that is occupied by cars waiting in line for fuel. And of course, that lack of fuel spills over into every aspect of life. Food doesn't keep anymore. A lot of my friends have gotten food poisoning because you just can't keep things cold. It's summer in Beirut. Things need to be cooled and and it's just not possible anymore. And it's also simple things like pumping water to the top of your building. 
When the electricity is off, you can't shower, you can't use the tap, you can't flush the toilets. It's all the basic things that you just take for granted in your life that are just not possible. And it's extremely frustrating. Just imagine not being able to do anything. And so there's fuel shortages, there's incredible medicine shortages. So I would say before we were talking about what is known as the Venezuela scenario of hyperinflation and just pretty much a shortage of basic goods and, and a breakdown of the basic functions of the state, I'd say we're there now. And that's sort of the important point is that as a journalist, for example, you're left trying to figure out how to describe this situation that is so bad, but usually it was better yesterday and is going to be worse tomorrow. And so that situation we're in, it's just this constant decline. The only thing that you can be sure of really is that things are going to get worse. Oh my gosh. Do you notice this even more so when you leave the country and come back? I know you recently were overseas. You went to Germany, right? Definitely. I mean, you leave the country and, and many Lebanese will say this. I have most of my friends who I went to uni with have now left. You get the sense that when people leave, they're just astounded by simple pleasures of life. Sort of hearing silence, not always hearing these diesel generators humming in the city, just not fearing for that next horrible thing that's going to happen. I mean, in the space of, you know, 18 months, Lebanon went through the biggest protest it's ever seen, the worst economic crisis it's ever seen, a global pandemic, and one of the world's largest non-nuclear explosions. The succession of the incredible things that we have seen here and the unspeakable things we've seen here. I don't think anybody has come to terms with that. And so, yes, when you leave, you feel this immense sense of relief, but also the emotions start to bubble because we suppress those things to get through daily life. You can't constantly be sad and, and worrying about these things. You suppress it whatever way you can. And then coming back, I mean, it's, uh, it, it, I don't know, it's, uh, you know what it is? It's, it's the first time the electricity cuts once you come back that you have that sigh and that sinking feeling inside you. And you're like, ah, oh God, here I am again. I'm back in Lebanon. What is the way out of this? Foreign powers like the EU and the IMF have gotten involved to various extents to try to put some international pressure to force the government to make economic reforms, just for starters, what changes did they want to see? So various international bodies want different things, but what it basically boils down to is Lebanon has a, a serious banking and financial sector crisis because of the way money was spent for decades. Several financial crises have hit the country at once a devaluation of the currency, a banking sector near collapse, and a bankrupt government. The political elite, the central bank, and the banking sector are still arguing over who is responsible for bankrupting the state. You basically just have a hole. You have the money that's supposed to be at the bank isn't there anymore. It's basically just numbers on a screen. And so how do you fix that? You have to distribute the losses. That is something that hasn't been done in the country. And that is something that the international community is calling for. That is something the IMF is calling for. They're basically saying, listen, guys, you have tens of billions of dollars that are missing. You need to decide, first of all, what that number is. And second of all, what you're going to do with it. And what we've seen is basically Lebanese officials try to prevent 
themselves paying the cost of it. And so there's an incredible amount of frustration among the international community who it's worth saying, you know, in the past were major supporters of the politicians we have in power. It's not like a one-way street. And so they decided in July that it was going to move forwards with adopting a sanctions regime. And so what we're seeing now is we're actually seeing a, a joint EU effort of all the EU member states to draw up a regime, which is basically the legal framework for, for sanctions. The European Union has agreed to impose sanctions, including travel bans and asset freezes on Lebanon's leaders. Criteria would include obstructing efforts to form a government, corruption, financial misdeeds and human rights abuses. For politicians with close ties to Europe, second passports and homes there, children educated abroad, those sanctions could have a real effect, especially the focus on obstructing the formation of a new government which at this point the international community see as something that is, you know, just unacceptable given the scale of the crisis in Lebanon. So perhaps this is a naive question, but why is this happening at all? It seems to be less painful to make reforms and slow the collapse, if not start to reverse it. Even those who benefited from the corruption that we've talked about must now be getting hit economically too. And it doesn't seem like the politicians in Lebanon are interested in any kind of change. So I'm curious as to your take on why. It is sort of hard to understand, right? When you're looking at it from the outside, like how can you let a country fall so far? Are the interests and and is the wealth that you've amassed not enough? And we don't have a clear answer for that. Lebanese politicians have for decades practiced a policy of basically buying time. You've always had these leaders who emerged out of the civil war, and these people entered government, and what they did is they basically split the pie. There was a pie called Lebanon, and everybody took their slice. It's not a a state in that sense of it. It is a group of different militias that have entered the states and still have a militia mindset. And so I think there's a question there of, of whether they are even capable of thinking with a nation in mind or with a Lebanese people in mind. I think there's a serious question about that. I don't know that they even know how to budge. There is also a sense in Lebanon that it doesn't matter. We can push the local situation as far as we want because in the end, there's an international settlement that will make everything good again. One of the reasons might be the history of the country, which is a country that is prone to foreign intervention. It's a place that really has not ever been able to totally decide its own fate. And so there's always a sense that the solution will come from somewhere else. And that deliberate policy of doing nothing actually does a lot to the Lebanese people. You know, if you used to make a salary of $1,000, that salary today is worth about $80. $80. And so it's more than scratching your head. Sometimes you have to scream about it because it is just uh, jarring, but that's the way it is. They all act as if they're not responsible, while in fact, you know, what, what the Lebanese people are saying is, no, all of you are responsible. This is Karlain Hetti Karam, whose husband, brother, and cousin were firefighters, all killed after the blast. We had nothing left to lose. We're ready to get the truth with our bare hands. We're ready to go to their homes and bring them out by force to be held to account. Because those who did this to our loved ones, to hang them would be too kind. Those who made us gather them up in pieces and bury them twice deserve no less than the gallows. Bringing it back to the blast, what have you heard from people about why the investigation is so important to them? 
There's really a sense in this country that if there is no justice for a crime of this scale, then there will never be justice in Lebanon. This is the hill to die on. This is the fight to put in everything that you have. Because if 217 people can be killed and 6,500 injured and hundreds of thousands displaced and a capital city eviscerated and no one is held accountable, then no one will ever be held accountable for anything in the future. And so that's why it matters. Accountability doesn't exist in Lebanon. From a fight on the street to the way money has been spent on a road project to the fact that you can't even know how your MP votes in parliament because there's no electronic voting system. Lebanon has an accountability problem. And there is a sense here that let's take this issue head on. Let's start with the biggest crime, certainly the biggest crime in peacetime. Let's start with that because if we let this pass, then, you know, that is it. And there is also the sense that from this crime, if there is accountability for this crime, it is a, an opportunity to really create a new Lebanon. Taymour says that's reflected by another family member of the victims. Ibrahim Hatid, who lost his brother in, in the blast, he was saying that, in effect, this blast, quote, created the real Lebanon because it brought people together through suffering. It showed that there was a divide in the country between politicians who are self-serving and a people who pay the consequences for that. And it's reminiscent of a song which became really famous during Lebanon's protests. It's by a, a guy called Al-Ras. And what he says is, uh, quote, they united us in suffering, so we became a people and won. And there is a sense that Definitely, people have become united in their suffering in some way. They became a people. They have yet to win, but they are definitely intent on it. And that's The Take. This episode was produced by Alexandra Locke, Medina Kispe, Priyanka Telve, Nagin Auliai, Amy Walters, Ney Alvarez, and me, Malika Bilal. Alex Roldan is our sound designer. Tom Vinton is our editor. Aya El-Milek is our engagement producer, and Stacey Samuel is our executive producer. We'll be back on Friday.